0: We might have that wonderful thing like a when a man feels like creating, he'll just
1: create. so I went to this art show with my wife uh to support a colleague of hers, who's a local artist, and uh I went up to the booth where this woman had her stuff and um. One of the things that was for sale were these little uh, fabric pouches. And they were supposedly made by children. And they had these, what I th- I think I understood as Mayan symbols on them. So there would be various like animals, insects, the sun, plants, little people and stuff uh, drawn on them or sewn on them. So I was flipping through these things, and of course I wanted to buy one that had a cool symbol on it. But um, one of the symbols, I couldn't really identify what it was. You know, it didn't look like a person or an animal or anything that I could figure out. So while my wife was chatting with her colleague, there was another woman that was behind the booth. So I asked her if she knew what this unknown symbol meant. And she pointed at the the two connected diamond shapes that you know this that were actually that were on this thing. And she said, uh, "I think each one of these diamond shapes represents the cosmos." And I was like, oh, cool!" So uh, I was like, "Yeah, two cosmoses, you know, like parallel universes." So I'm thinking that that might be a cool one to buy if I'm gonna buy one of these things. And, uh, I'm rummaging through the rest of the stuff, and after a few minutes, my wife is done talking to her colleague, and then she comes behind the booth, and I wanted to wait for her to get there to pay for it, so I would, you know, so she would know that I was supporting the cause. And, uh, I said, yeah, I'll take this one. And, uh, she said, oh, the one with the toad symbol on it. <laughs> I was like, "It was a, it was a fucking toad. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I didn't have the heart to to say that, you know, her colleague told me it was like a dual universes or something, but no, it was a toad. So, uh, an update on the uh, creative work economy. Um, if y'all, anyone who listened to that particular podcast would know this was a little system that my wife and I were were doing this semester... Whereby, you know, we basically would have to earn our uh, screen time. So I divided the different things I do over the course of a day, you know, a couple of different categories. The two that were part of this system one was distractotainment, which is, you know, any sort of looking at a screen, basically, whether it's watching TV or goofing around on social media, any of that. And then another category of activity was creative work. So that was, you know, working on a podcast or writing or recording music or any of the number of little creative projects that I had. So the idea was I had to do an hour of creative work to earn 30 minutes of distract attainment time. And I could not indulge in distract attainment unless I had earned it pretty much. And so we basically stuck with this all semester long. So as I'm recording this, the semester's now over, and so we're not sticking to this creative work economy system anymore. So I'm sort of evaluating it uh for the past semester. And you know, there's some mixed results from from my wife's point of view. You know, I think she was trying to motivate herself to uh publish things cuz she's got to publish articles for her tenure packet. Um Me, you know, I was really looking to just make sure that my creative projects didn't die on the vine because I knew it was going to be a busy semester and I was going to be doing, uh, you know, I had to study for my comprehensive examinations and my graduate school program in counseling. And I knew it was going to just be hectic and I had an internship that I was doing and I figured this would be the only way that I could sort of ensure that I was chipping away at my creative project. So I didn't expect to be majorly productive because it was an extremely busy semester. It was really an effort to make sure that I just did something. So from that point of view, it was a success. I mean, I started two podcasts. Uh, I got this one, of course, that uh, I'm still trying to figure out what the hell it is, but it's you know what I, it says something to do with my creative process and that and uh, in my creative life, and then I have another podcast um, on it's really based on my other blog, which is called Integral Health Resources, which is sort of my academic psychology counseling thing, um, and I've had that website going now for several years. It used to be actually part of Head the Gong. It was like this little portal within Head the Gong, and it got so big. And then, you know, the website was just so crazy and out of control, I figured I'd separate out these two things. The one would be my sort of quasi-professional or uh, uh, intellectual philosophical interests. And then this, this head-the-gong thing would be my cr- more creative side with music and, and writing and so forth. So anyway, so I, I got two podcasts going, and I got more than 10 episodes of each. So it was more than 20 episodes that I knocked out. I did do some work on my quote-unquote novel, whatever you want to call it, my writing project in Gestation. I did some work on that, I, I recorded some music, um, I played a lot of music, so, yeah, I mean, when I look back, I did a lot that I wouldn't have otherwise done, and was sort of, um, you know, counting on the fact that I'm so addicted to this distractotainment that I would do whatever it took to, to earn the time, which is pretty much true. Um, you know, it wasn't without its 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 bumps along the way. I mean, whenever there was, you know, a vacation or something, I I stopped doing the system and just indulged in whatever screen time I wanted to. And then when things got really hairy, when I was take the week I took my comprehensive examinations, I just dropped the whole thing and said, fuck this, you know. I, mean, I didn't have time to fool around with screen time anyway, so... So I didn't stick with it maybe perfectly, but all in all, I accomplished a lot. And so now here I am, I'm in winter break now, and I got plenty of time to to do whatever I want. And yet, uh, you know, this first week off I've had, I've not, not been very productive, and I've definitely indulged in just, uh, you know, in this distract realm. But I don't think I'm going to, to get back into this creative work economy thing until next semester. That's my, which is my last in graduate school, and then after that, it's back to life, you know, as a an employed person. So we'll see how that goes. But anyway, I'm on break, so I'm I'm definitely planning on on, on doing some creative stuff, and we'll see where that leads. And hopefully, I'll I'll knock out more podcast episodes than usual. Something as I was uh, reading through. Uh, my journals. I came across a quote that I, I yanked off a website, one of my my favorite websites, which is Brain Pickings. That's run by someone named Maria Popova, and she was sort of reviewing her website and and crystallizing different insights that uh, that she's drawn from her working on this project. And one of them I I found to be Pretty inspiring, and uh, this sort of tenet that she puts out there is, she puts it this way: seek out what magnifies your spirit, and um, and she goes on to say she took uh, maybe this concept from another person, um, Patty Smith who I guess was discussing uh, her various creative influences and was talking about writers and artists who magnified her spirit. And so this was where Popova got this phrase. And so she encouraged us to ask the question, who are the people, ideas, and books that magnify your spirit? Find them, hold on to them, and visit them often. Use them not only as a remedy once spiritual malaise has already infected your vitality, but as a vaccine administered while you are healthy to protect your radiance. So, I mean, I love this this, uh, this quote and this whole sentiment because this is, you know, what's one of those things that I need to remember is... Um, especially the, the part where it's not, not only when I'm feeling creatively cut off do I dive into um, these things that magnify my spirit, but to give myself healthy doses of them all the time so that I don't fall into this this period of creative constipation or whatever you want to call it. And you know, I might be somewhat in that at the moment, so that's maybe why I, I picked this out. And then, uh, yeah, I read this quote, and then I immediately started um you know going on looking into my um my archives, and I watched a few uh Henry Miller videos and was listening to Alan Watts, some of his recordings. These are people that are been sort of mentors of mine that that really uh magnify my spirit, and yeah, I think it works. So this is definitely something I'm going to keep in mind over the next several weeks. So as I was um digging through some of my old old Henry Miller stuff, I came across um a recording uh that Miller had done. It was in 1949, I believe, and he was just uh in a friend's recording studio, I think a home studio. And he was reading, you know, from one of his books or something. And then while he was doing, you know, these recordings, you know, it would be essentially like, you know, an audio book today. He just started going off on this monologue and talking about the process of um, sitting in front of a microphone and hearing his own voice and recording himself. And uh, you're talking about 1949 here, and I just found this uh, sort of spontaneous monologue that he, he goes into to be just absolutely fascinating. And in some ways, um, you know, it, it was prescient in the sense, I mean, it, you could consider this maybe like the first podcast. You know uh, as I was sitting here today thinking, you know, uh, what the hell am I gonna do a podcast about you know I haven't been recording music or or doing that much lately um and sometimes you know you just have to turn the microphone on and just start talking well uh to have you know this this little gem uh by Henry Miller is just incredible to me. I can see him you know." today. I mean, what would he be doing if he was online? Would he be this, you know, prodigious blogger? Um, you know, this is a guy who was very, very productive and was writing on the back of napkins. And I believe it, you know, at UCLA, there's a whole, um, you know, vaults filled with all of his stuff. And of course, you know, back then you could lose your manuscripts and you'd have, you know, carbon copies of things and you'd be moving back and forth. And I believe Miller You know that his one of his ex-wives had access to tons of his archives and things and basically burned them or something which is you know unthinkable uh in some ways but you just imagine if he if he had technology um at his fingertips the way we do today uh, how would things have changed you know would he would he have been the same would it have been better or worse but uh so in 1949, it was quite a piece of technology to be accessing, you know, a, a microphone, a tape, a recording studio, and stuff. And of course, he could never have known in a million years, you know, what was going to happen, uh, you know, fifty, sixty years down the line, with the internet and 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 everything, social media and podcasting, but. So when you're hearing this, this little blurb, and I sort of culled a bunch of stuff together into about a six minute, um, sort of recording, uh, I don't know. I mean, you can obviously think about it any way you want to, but I just find it to be unbelievably fascinating, not just, you know, as a gem from a a literary giant and a hero of mine, but, uh in the context of the modern age, the modern digital age and um, everything that's going on now, it's just, uh, to me, it's just unbelievably fascinating. So I'll leave you this week with Henry Miller on the future of communication.
0: You know, I'm sorry I didn't know about this recording business uh, earlier. It's a new medium for me, and I realize I've been rather awkward and self-conscious. Uh, but don't forget, Louie, the next time when I make a recording, have something good for me to drink, will you, while I'm doing it. It's one thing to sit down to a typewriter and, with God for your audience, you might say, and write. It's quite another thing to talk into the microphone. You... though you... there's nobody in the room, you're all alone, just as you're all alone when you write... Nevertheless, you have the feeling that there are millions of ears out there. They're all hanging on trees, it seems, like the leaves and boughs. And that enters into the whole thing and affects you. It's a physical thing as well as a mental thing. If you were addressing a mob in the flesh, outdoors, on a soapbox, that would be uh, quite a different thing again. There you see everyone. you watch how it's affecting them, what you say, you can change it and alter it. in this studio room uh, before this little instrument, which is a frightening one. by the way, I must tell you, it gives you the creeps. Um, you don't know what the hell's happening out there with those people who've got their ears glued to the uh, whatever it is, I don't know the apparatus, what the hell it's called? I don't remember. But anyhow, everybody seems to be, he, he's plugged in, his ears are all plugged up. And you're talking through those wires and those contraptions. And you've got to get clear of that maze somehow. And you've got to speak to him as though you were out in the open air under the sun and the leaves shining and all that sort of thing. And yet, you're just locked up in a room. That's what's creepy and eerie about it. You've got to believe that it's going to register, whether it does register or not. And if I'd only been able to spend, say, another ten days with you, and you had lots of good things to drink, don't forget about that. We had all kinds of good things to eat, too. I think we could really knock out something. I think I could compose something, especially for this apparatus. There ought to be uh, speeches or records, whatever you call them, made... Just for the microphone, huh? or for the recording, for the tape, let's say. That's what it is, it's the tape. It's about the flimsiest, uh, most perishable thing there is. I see you I'm making a speech, and you tell me at the same time I'm erasing one. Who ever heard of such a thing? It's a contradiction in itself. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> uh, it's a long swing from that to convey what I'm getting at. But this whole experiment has gotten me to both thinking and believing more strongly than ever that we're not going to be reading books very many more years. Wouldn't surprise me that in another 50 years, there won't be any more books. We'll have this direct communication with one another. We might not even have to talk into a microphone then. We might not need records or tape or anything. We might have that wonderful thing happen, like a miracle, and I can see it happening. That when a man feels like creating, he'll just create, and maybe he won't even open his mouth. But it'll register, and it'll register on everyone. It won't be exclusive. You won't have to buy a book or join a club or any of that sort of thing. The real, spontaneous, creative act will be communicated universally, simultaneously, instantaneously. That would be a wonderful thing. I've written a lot of words, millions of words, I guess. And I think today, more than ever in my whole life, I realize how useless and unnecessary were a lot of those words. Certainly when I repeat them, when I tell them over again in a recital, I see that they don't belong. They weren't necessary. The only thing that was necessary was what those men have that I spoke of a moment ago who are in love with the sound of their own voice, the ability to transmit, to communicate what they have effectively and instantaneously, to have a sort of charm, to hypnotize. After all, what the hell, what is poetry? What was the great poetry that we only know now by some distant reverberation through printed books? What was Homer? He wasn't something written in a book. He was a man singing his words. He was a blind man, they say, wandering like a beggar. And wherever he went, he was creating a poem, a song. Somebody wrote it down. That's made a different kind of music. When you come today to men like T.S. Eliot and Auden and Spender and all the modern poets, they are a long, long ways from those magicians of old, those wizards who had the verbal faculty. Let's get back to that. That's what I say. Okay, Louie, that's all.